Welcome to the Mornings with Sue and Andy podcast for Wednesday, May 26th. We begin with another edition of Ask the Doctor with infectious disease specialist, Dr. Craig Janney. As always, Dr. Janney answers COVID-19 questions sent in by you, the listener. What has worked and what hasn't when it comes to the battle against COVID-19 in Canada and around the world? We're going to find out some details on a new study from the Fraser Institute that points to two key factors. Next, we look at the emergence and widespread use of self-checkout kiosks at the grocery store. Do you like to use them or do you prefer a good old-fashioned checkout clerk at the supermarket? We get the results of a new survey on the topic with Dr. Sylvain Charlebois, Senior Director of the Agri-Food Analytics Lab. And finally, it's news you need to know if you're in the market to buy a new home or refinance your existing mortgage. We speak with an accredited mortgage professional to break down the new national mortgage rules and stress test, which will come into effect on June the 1st. 812 Mornings with Sue and Andy. Throughout the pandemic, we've been very lucky to pose your COVID-19 questions to our expert, and we continue to do so this morning. We say good morning to Dr. Craig Janney, Associate Professor in the Department of Microbiology, Immunology, and Infectious Diseases at the University of Calgary. Good morning to you once again, Dr. Janney. Good morning. We got one off the top here, and we've heard this in different different forms, I, I guess, throughout the pandemic. We have a texter who insists that sunshine and supplements will prevent COVID-19, and that it's all about healthy living. Uh, what's your response to that? So sunshine supplements, they can help, but absolutely. I mean, the healthier you are, the, the better positioned you are to fight off any infection, including this one. We had seen good data that, that you need vitamin D, that people deficient in vitamin D tend to have worse disease. We haven't seen any proof that, that supplementing vitamin D actually protects anything. So we know that you need to be properly, uh, proper health, good nutrition in order to fight this off. But unfortunately, those alone can't stop the disease. They just help you if you do get sick. So we, we need to maintain our, our health so that if we are exposed, uh, we have a better chance of getting through this without severe disease outcome. Thank you for that. Okay, perfect. Let's move on. A text from our friend Bob. A question for the doctor. I'm pretty sure I had what was COVID back in February of 2020. Just got Moderna shot on Monday. Had a, a very high fever and pain at the injection site. 48 hours later, started to feel better. Is that normal? Should I get the second shot? So it's hard to say if it's normal. It's not unexpected. So these are the side effects that are reported. They're still fairly rare. So I, I hesitate to use the word normal, um, but they're not unexpected. They're not out of the ordinary, if, if that is more clear. Uh, so absolutely get the second shot. That is how these vaccines behave. Those are the temporary short-term side effects. And that's really a measure that your immune system kicked in. It recognized the vaccine. It is learning from the vaccine and you're generating that protective immunity that will carry on into the future. This next one is, is kind of a, a procedural, if you will, or scheduling. Can you ask the doctor when a 74-year-old can expect to get a call for a second COVID Pfizer shot? My first shot was on March 25th. So unfortunately, I don't have that information. I do know that the, the, the maximum interval of 16 weeks is likely to be shortened. We are getting plenty of vaccine into the province, and that means we will have the shot available to give people earlier than that 16 weeks. 
The other encouraging data, though, is studies that are coming out of Europe that were looking at extended dosing, so not the three weeks that was originally in the Health Canada approval, but looking out to 12 weeks actually found the Pfizer generated better immunity if you delayed that booster out to about 12 weeks. So we are not only uh, getting the shots earlier, but we're actually learning that extended interval for the average person is better. Individual, those with, with health concerns, please talk to your physician if you think you need to get the shot a little earlier. Dr. Janney, this person saying, I've had my first shot, but it feels like I have COVID right now. Will a test show if I do, even though I've been vaccinated? Yes. So a nasal test, the swab, it will not pick up any evidence of the vaccine. So the vaccine is only going to be working in your blood and not in your nasal uh, cavity. Plus, the, the test looks for proteins or, or genes of the virus that are not in the vaccine. So the vaccine will not skew a nasal swab test. If, however, you waited and looked for the serology, the blood antibodies later, if you're vaccinated, you will test positive, even if you've never had the, the actual infection. So nasal swab now, if you're concerned, find out if you have it. And if you need to, you, you will still have to self-isolate. Next, next question says, I had the Moderna vaccine one week ago and now have a, a rash on the injection, injection site that's lasted two days. Is that a known side effect, the rash? Yeah, so the redness and rash at an injection site, again, rare. Uh, I've not seen the evidence out two weeks, but uh, as with any reaction whatsoever, whether it's related to the vaccine or not, if you're concerned, please contact your doctor. Let them know. Uh, they are aware of the, the latest information, but from what I've seen on the, the reported side effects, a rash is not unexpected. But, uh, you know, again, any medical thing, if you have concerns, trust your instinct, talk to your doctor. Dr. Janney, uh, we have had this question a few times before it relates to thalidomide and kind of comparing it to the vaccines we need to hold you over for commercials can you stick sure. around of course Eight nineteen on mornings with sue and andy uh, some more time with infectious disease specialist from the university of calgary dr craig jenny thank you for uh, sticking around with us dr jenny hi yes <laughs> this this one here uh, it comes in from michelle and it says thalidomide was approved for use and uh, that turned out poorly what is the possibility uh, we might find uh, similar results with uh, covid19 vaccines down the line yeah, this is a good question, and I fully understand the concern that, that it seems as though these vaccines have been rushed or it seems as though they've, they've been developed quite quickly. We have to remember, though, that all of the pieces of these vaccines, so whether we're talking about the lipid nanoparticles and the RNA from Pfizer and Moderna or these viral vectors from the AstraZeneca, they've actually been in development for years. They just had not been pulled together for this type of vaccine. So we have a really good safety record on each of the pieces of this. We know that they work. We know what to expect long term. Likewise, we're building off of more than 70 years of vaccine experience. So we understand what happens when we put a protein into the body or the body makes a protein, how long that lasts, how long these carrier viruses last in the body. So we have all of that information. And basically what we did is we pulled together all of these pieces of which we already know the safety profile and assembled them into a new package. So we have very few concerns about the ingredients or the formulation. And the only question really was, does it work? Does it protect people? And that's really what we were doing in those phase three trials. The phase three trials did not shorten any of the safety windows. So the vaccines that were approved 10 years ago went through exactly the same safety trials as the current vaccine. So we, we were able to do this without shortening any safety windows. And in fact, we enrolled even more people in these phase three trials than we normally do for any vaccine. 
So we have a really broad spectrum of the population, lots of people, full-length safety trial, and building off components we already knew were safe. So as a result, we're very confident about the safety of the current vaccines approved in Canada. Really important to clear that up. Thank you so much. Okay, next question relates to pregnancy. My wife is in the very early stages of pregnancy. She has an appointment to get her first Pfizer shot tomorrow. Should she go ahead or reschedule to later in her pregnancy or wait till after she gives birth? So this is, a again, a question to have uh, to pose to your doctor. Um, the current guidelines from the Society of Obstetricians and Gynecologists in Canada is that pregnant uh, women should consider being vaccinated. So it, it uh, feels as though the risk of COVID far outweighs the risk of vaccine, vaccination. But again, each person's individual health history is a little bit different. And, it, it, you know, the, the physicians and doctors are encouraging you to discuss your personal health history concerns and to make a deci- an informed decision together. Last question I think that we can sneak in is, uh, this one's very interesting, and I think that a lot of families might be going through this. Please ask the doctor how I can help convince my young 20-year-olds to get vaccinated when their father is a very strong anti-vaxxer. So I'm wondering if if there are online resources, because I think it's all about the education myself. You know, what do you recommend to people who want, you know, the straight goods for their children or family members who have been told not to get the vaccination from perhaps other family members? Yeah, the, the, it's a great question. Uh, there are some online resources. So uh, the, the the governing bodies here in Canada have approved the vaccine, and all the safety data and efficacy data is there. NACI has recommended it. But here in the city of Calgary, we have fantastic uh, uh, researchers and clinicians that work in the Alberta Children's Hospital who have been very public about their support of, of vaccination of younger uh, uh, Calgarians, so all the way from 12 up, but especially into those 20 year olds um, we do know right now we have people in their 20s in the intensive care unit mm-hmm. we know people that, uh, that that manage to fight it off and survive still come out of the intensive care unit with lasting problems permanent lung damage is one example we're now seeing swelling of the heart and other things so we have to be careful that those daily fatalities as tragic as they are are really the tip of the iceberg and that people who get severely ill with this can have lasting effects far beyond, uh, you know, being admitted to the hospital, perhaps for a couple of weeks. But when they come out, they may still have lingering, uh, lifelong uh, effects and, and scarring. So we have to be really careful. And, and unfortunately, right now, that is the demographic that has the most virus in the province. Do we send them to the doctor, to the doctor to, to get sort of that information then, Dr. Uh, absolutely. Jenny? They will be more than happy to discuss uh, that information. I think people, are, you know, tend to be a little bit afraid of the doctor and, and feel as though the doctor is simply going to mandate vaccines for everybody. Uh, everybody I work with wants to have that conversation, wants to lay out the individual benefits as well as the risk. You know, we have to be clear, any medical treatment, I've said before, even taking aspirin comes with a risk. It may be minute, mm-hmm. but there is a risk. And doctors will discuss that and help you make an informed decision on your own personal risk and benefit um, scenario. Thank you for that, and thanks for your time again this morning. We love chatting with you. Thanks for answering our questions. You're welcome, guys. Take care. You too. That is Dr. Craig Janney, Associate Professor in the Department of Microbiology, Immunology, and Infectious Diseases at the U of C. 709 Mornings with Sue and Andy. As we continue to fight through the COVID-19 pandemic, research is starting to come in around what has worked and what hasn't in controlling the spread of the virus. A new study released today shows that uh, what really helps is more testing and hospital beds. 
We're joined now by Livio Di Matteo, Senior Fellow at the Fraser Institute, who authored this study. Good morning to you, Livio. Good morning, Andy. How are you? Good. Thank you for taking the time with us. Well, first of all, how did you determine that hospital beds and testing were the two things, the two key things that seemed to help the most in preventing COVID-19? Well, the study is a study of almost 200 countries, and so there was a statistical analysis looking at, you know, cases per million, deaths per million, and how they related to uh, numerous variables such as hospital beds, uh, testing rates, etc. And uh, in the case of testing, uh, basically, um, when you first start to test, cases actually go up. Uh, because you're discovering more cases, but eventually you reach this sort of peak. It's like a, it's like a, like a hill. And then after that, cases start to go down as you ramp up the testing. So for every extra 100,000 tests after you pass the peak of that hill, uh, you basically reduce deaths by about 21 per million. And you also reduced cases. And in the case of hospital beds, uh, for each additional hospital bed per thousand people, uh, it's uh, correlated with a drop of about uh, 31 deaths per million population. And those uh, results were, were, were fairly significant. And so, I mean, that basically suggests that those were uh, two key ingredients, uh, testing and making sure you had the, the health care infrastructure in place to deal with uh, uh, cases as they came in uh, that helped reduce the mortality rate from the pandemic. And Livio, where does Canada rank on, on these two things when it comes to hospital beds and or testing? Uh, well, well, that's that's a good question. Uh, it depends who you want to compare us to, but I, I think the fairest comparison is uh, the other uh, advanced economies, uh, the International Monetary Fund's IMF 35. And so in the case of testing, in terms of tests per million people, uh, Canada ranked 26 out of 35. So you, you know, you weren't quite in the middle of the pack, you were a little bit below that. And in terms of hospital beds, uh, we do uh, relatively poorly there. Um, there's of the 35 countries, uh, we ranked 32nd out of 35. And so if you just need uh, some idea of what that means in terms of bed numbers per thousand population, uh, Canada has 2.5 uh, hospital beds per thousand population. I mean, that's sort of chronic and acute care all put together. Uh, they range from a high of about 13 in Japan uh, to lows of about uh, just below 2.5, uh, I believe, for Sweden and Denmark, Canada, we're at the bottom end. Mm. So uh, even Germany has something like seven or eight uh, beds per thousand. I mean, there's there's quite a range in there. So that that is a bit of a factor, yeah. Doctor, you mentioned, you know, the 200 countries, and you, you gave examples of a couple here uh, with different metrics. I'm wondering, is there one shining example of a nation uh, that we should look at as, as a great example that really got things right in your research? Well, I, you can look at that two ways. Uh, if you just look within the IMF countries, uh, Australia, New Zealand, and Taiwan did very well. Uh, if you want to expand it uh, a bit uh, more globally, um, uh, China, Hong Kong, Taiwan, and Singapore also did quite well. Uh, those countries are particularly interesting uh, because, in a sense, they all share something in common with Canada. Uh, China, Hong Kong, Taiwan, Singapore, and Canada were the five countries most heavily affected by SARS in 2004. And so statistically, when you look at those five countries collectively, they averaged uh, many fewer cases and deaths per million. However, when you just look at the five, Canada's a bit of an outlier amongst them. So, uh, you know, China, Hong Kong, Taiwan, and Singapore 
uh, range uh, from about just under one to about 22 deaths per million from COVID uh, in 2020. Uh, Canada had 500 almost. So, I mean, Canada, um, uh, all things considered, did relatively well within the IMF countries. We tend to be in the bottom third in terms of cases per million and deaths per million. Uh, If you compare us to the United States, of course, we like to think we've done really well. Uh, if you start comparing us with uh, different groups, we, we haven't done as well. And so, you know, the, the reference category is important. Uh, the SARS example is particularly important because it wasn't a sense of dry run uh, for, for a more serious pandemic. And we don't seem to have, uh, uh, have heeded the lesson, I, I suppose. I mean, if you had to draw a lesson from the pandemic, uh, I suppose the most important lesson of the pandemic is to learn from the pandemic. And, uh, you know, we seem to have been caught short. Uh, in, after 2004, we studied it and seemed to have planned a lot, but our, our response does not seem to have been there. Very interesting. Okay, can we talk also uh, in the study you talked about or looked at uh, lockdowns and whether they worked or not, and, and at what point when a lockdown was done did it work or not? Can you give, break that down a bit for us and how Canada fared? Yeah, that, that's, that, the lockdown was an interesting variable. It, it was very complicated to model. So, you know, you could look at sort of the, the, the stringency of the lockdown as measured by the Oxford Government Response Tracker. That's a number from 0 to 100, with 100 as the most stringent. So you could look at that at points in time, but you could also look at the ramping up of the lockdown and the lockdowns are effective uh they were more effective early on in the pandemic they they, they seem to have uh, resulted in countries that sort of locked down quickly and fairly stringently early on in the pandemic overall over the course of 2020 seem to have done better yeah, because the numbers are for the entire year however if you then start looking at stringency and, and lockdowns uh, at later points uh, they, they don't seem to be correlated with sort of significant reductions so uh, I mean I think the most important thing about a lockdown is if you're going to have it uh, I think it needs to be fairly short sharp and and enforced there mm-hmm. there has to be a high degree of compliance i, I mean very often even during uh, the lockdowns we we've had in canada um the very first ones i think people were quite afraid and actually complied heavily uh, as the year went on uh, there were sort of different conflicting messages uh, from public health authorities and governments and mm-hmm. i i think people got tired but they also got a bit confused and, you know, I, I think a, a certain chunk of the population also interpreted, had their own rules of what they thought being in lockdown meant in terms of who they could see and who they couldn't. So, uh, you know, a lockdown does work, but they seem to have become less effective as the, as the year uh, wore on. Well, thank you so much for your research. Uh, you know, a lot to digest there. We appreciate your time. Thank you very much. Have a great day. You as well. That is uh, Livio Di Matteo, Senior Fellow at the Fraser Institute. And my biggest takeaway is how short-sighted we can be in the sense that we didn't really take those skills and lessons from mm, 2004 exactly. and the SARS. And here we are in 2021. Are we going to cement this into, a, uh, well, you can, for sure, this is uh, one heck of a more uh, hill to climb than, than SARS was. Uh, but but what it, if we have one, another one in the future? No, that's what, I, Are there we, lessons that we finally may have learned and, and and to a certain extent not just the lessons on paper and in scripts and in you know in, in news stories but mm-hmm. at the end 
these lessons in infrastructure so that we perhaps can produce our own vaccines on a dime here right. in Canada. Perhaps we know that we have to shut down borders and the PPE that we should be using to, a, to get on top of it. A Canadian playbook. Yeah, there you have so it. So to speak. Yeah. 609, it's mornings with Sue and Andy. They've been viewed as a blessing by some and a curse by others. We're referring to the self-checkout counter at your local grocery store. Some love them for allow, allowing them to quickly check out without having to deal with other humans, but others view them as job killers. However, a new survey shows more Canadians are jumping on the self-checkout bandwagon. With details, we're joined by Dr. Sylvain Charlebois, Senior Director of the Agri-Food Analytics Lab at Dalhousie University. Good morning to you, Dr. Charlebois. Good morning. So uh, tell us about this. What does the latest data show about our desire to use these self-checkouts? Desire is going up. Mm. <laughs> and before the pandemic, uh, we estimated that about 30% of Canadians actually would prefer to use self-checkouts for a variety of reasons. Uh, and uh, there, there was a strong correlation between age and intent to use self-checkouts. So the older you were or you are, you, the less likely you were going to use a self-checkout lane because... Uh, you feel, well, cashiers are able to manage uh, the groceries you're buying. You wanted to support what they were doing, et cetera. But the pandemic uh, seems to be changing things a little bit. Um, we actually surveyed Canadians across the country uh, only to realize that right now uh, both cashiers and self-checkout lanes are are seen as equals for most demographic groups, and uh, for the younger generations, the millennials and Generation Zs, actually self-checkout lanes are now more popular uh, than before the pandemic. Do we think, uh, Dr. Charlebois, then, that that might be because people don't want people, other people touching their stuff through this pandemic? Or do you think that that might be sort of why we saw that number change? Yeah, I think a human interaction uh, is is a factor. Uh, people, uh, what we're noticing is that the mindset of people when they walk into a grocery store is very different than than before the pandemic. Before the pandemic, people, well, were actually shopping, yeah. <laughs> browsing around, uh, and and the average visit was actually over forty minutes. Now, the average visit will last maybe 30 minutes, and people will actually want to walk in and out as soon as possible. So depending on what you're buying, if you're buying uh, a low number of items, uh, you're most likely to use uh, self-checkout lanes if if there's nobody there. But if you actually uh, have many items, uh, but you still want to go out, more people are actually inclined to use self-checkout lanes than before the pandemic just because they want to get out as soon as possible. And interacting with an unusual being actually represents a risk for, Mm -hmm. well, basically two Canadians out of five. Two Canadians out of five still see the the grocery store as a risk for them, for their own health. So do you think that this trend will continue post-pandemic when we can perhaps go to the grocery store without masks and we're not fearful of, of catching the virus? Or do you think that these habits are going to be hanging on? Uh, it's, it's unclear. Uh, what, what we're noticing is that more grocers are actually installing self-checkout lanes. I don't know if you've noticed in your, in your region, but uh, it's happening across the country. In fact, in some stores, they actually took out uh, self-checkout lanes before the pandemic, and now they're putting them back in. Mm-hmm. 
just because people uh, wanted them. And uh, and it, it's certainly putting, like, a lot of people uh, who really want to protect uh, cashier jobs think that these are job killers, but uh, less and less. And, and grocers are getting better at, at using better technologies. Uh, over the last 20 years, I mean, let's face it, self-checkout uh, technologies weren't necessarily great. There was always something wrong <laughs> as you were trying to yeah. figure out the machine. But they're getting better, and, and people are noticing as well, so they don't mind to use them as much. Do we know, I mean, I know the survey also asked about how we've changed where we shop and, and why. Do we know what some of those results were that you could share with us? Yeah, since the, since the start of the pandemic, 25%, so one Canadian four, has actually decided to shop elsewhere. That is a huge number. In, in food retailing, that's a lot, because typically when you uh, go to the grocery store, you're, you stick to, to the grocery stores you're accustomed to. But uh, to see that 25%, that's, that's a high number. So grocers will have to fight to keep their customers in and and one one challenge they have to manage is is the fear factor you want to make sure that people feel safe and and self-checkout lanes are certainly part of that strategy and I understand they're the tip of the iceberg to a certain extent when it comes to the technology of, you know, how, how soon, and I know that something like this has been tested already, uh, even in our nation, the, the carts mm. that are uh, smart carts, if you will. Tell us about yeah, that. Absolutely. So this is, I mean, self-checkout lanes, are, I think, are only the beginning. Uh, there's going to be other technologies that are going to be used more often. And frankly, I do see the day when you'll be able to get into a store, pick what you want, and, and then get out without really interacting with anybody or dealing with a, with a, with a self-checkout um, cashier or a cashier, uh, for that matter. The smart cart model is one where you put things into your cart and it calculates automatically the amount you owe, and that amount is deducted from your credit card automatically. Everything is done automatically, so you can go to your car, shoplift your way to your car, <laughs> I guess. Uh, the Amazon Go model is another one with sensors in the store, and as you grab stuff in uh, in the store, they'll calculate exactly how much you owe. And so there are different models out there, but I actually, the, the point, I think the objective is to make sure that people have a pleasant, uh, risk-free experience, I guess. Risk-free, I guess that's the key, isn't it? Thank you so much for your time this morning. Fascinating study. Appreciate it. All right, take care. Bye-bye. That is Dr. Sylvain Charlebois, Senior Director of the Agri-Food Analytics Lab at Dalhousie University. Would you, are you a, a self-checkout guy or do you like the cashier? I hate humans. I'm just kidding. <laughs> um, I, I try to avoid the self-checkout because I go to my grocery store so often that I have a relationship with these people. Right. And I like the human interaction. Having said that, I will go through if the others are busy. But probably, and I don't count the items, but probably 10 or less. Yeah, I just me find too. it too cumbersome, particularly oh, when, you have, when you have produce. I'm not trained to know these numbers off the top of my head. Mm-hmm. Uh, but one or two items, it's fantastic. Yeah. Yeah. I'm with you. I, I don't like to pack a whole lot of groceries through the self-check lane myself, so I'm happy to do that. And, uh, you know, I, I, the cashiers, they're, they're clean. They're wiping down the, the belt after every time, so I feel pretty safe at the grocery store overall. Yeah. I've started double masking sometimes, too, when I go in, and if it's really busy. 
And yeah. that makes me feel even better. The weekend of Saturday to Sunday at Superstore? Are you kidding me? This texter says I'm finding that I'm basically forced to use the self-checkout uh, due to what is offered to me. For example, 12 self-checkouts and two-man checkouts yeah, well, at Walmart, right. etc. That's from Pat. Uh, I go to Walmart early mornings, and then I've been there later afternoons sometimes, but generally with the on the weekend, early mornings, and it's just the self-checkouts. I get it. But then they open up the, the man and women <laughs> checkouts later in the day. They've even added self-checkout at Costco. Yep. That's the Costco's that didn't have Good it point. now do have it. 843 now. And if you're looking to get into the housing market or maybe redo your existing mortgage, then you'll want to hear what our next guest has to say. New rules when it comes to Canadian mortgages, including an updated stress test, go into effect starting on Tuesday. With details on what this means for house hunters, we're joined this morning by accredited mortgage professional, Aleem Charanya. Good morning, Aleem. Thanks for joining us with the AC Lending Group. How are you this morning? Good morning. I'm great. How are you? Excellent. Thanks for being here. Let's talk about the changes that we're expecting on June 1st. What exactly are they? Um, so basically, I don't know if, if everyone's heard about the stress test, but if you've ever applied for a mortgage since late 2017, you've probably heard that term, stress test or qualifying rate. So that is basically the rate on which you are approved on, not the rate you're getting. So currently, you could be getting a rate in the low twos, 2% mark, but we're qualifying you at 4.79% currently as of today. So what's happening? Well, we found out last Thursday that that qualifying slash test stress test rate is being increased to 5.25% on all mortgages as of June 1. Um, what does that really mean to anyone? Mm-hmm. Well, it means your purchasing power has been reduced by approximately 5%. Um, mm. To break that down, the average price of a single-family detached home in Calgary last month was $530,000. If that's the maximum you could qualify for as of today, well, as of next Tuesday, your new max purchasing price will be approximately $503,000, wow. which takes you out of that market. Hmm. So um, almost twenty-five or $25,000 difference, basically. Yeah. Um, so if you're wanting to get that house, there's only really one way to do it if you want to do it as of today, and that's to enter into a contract prior to June 1. Um, if you have a pre-approval with your lender or bank, that does not, that will not be carried over for the, for the old rules or rules as of today. Um, you need to be entered into a purchase contract prior to that date um, to be grandfathered the, the guidelines as of today. You know, Aleem, interesting because, I mean, if you if you had your mortgage and you're coming up to five years, uh, the rate now compared to five years ago is incredible. Um, so I'm wondering if I want to refinance and, and kind of break my mortgage and, and, and get some new terms, does it affect me with this uh, new uh, these new changes coming up on June 1st? Yeah, it affects everyone, whether you're putting 5% down, 20% down, trying to refinance, all mortgages across the board are affected by this new uh, increase in the stress test. So why are, why are they doing this? Is there, what's the background behind it, Aleem? The background is to try and cool off the housing market, um, probably specifically to two regions, to the west and the east of us. Um, but it's, it's going to be affecting all of us. And we probably affect, we'll probably see more of an effect in Calgary than they will see you know, in the BC and Ontario regions. Just because our pricing, with multiple offers happening on some properties, you're, you're looking at sometimes 
purchasing pricing going in between 1% and 5% over the list price. So you could see it affect us more than those bigger markets. Well, Aline, what's, what's, what's crazy now is you say this might be the influence of our neighbors in our nation and not so much Calgary, but it'll have a huge effect here. What we have seen, and we've talked to realtors here on the program you know, quite a bit, who said things are a bidding war. So it's got to be tough if, if I think that, you know, I might want to buy a house for 500 but, you know, that might go up to 550 or 585 What do you tell clients? Because they, they wouldn't, you know, they, they have to over-qualify just to have that extra buffer in case they get into a bidding war. How does that work? So I, I go through a few steps. One, I'm usually asked, what's the max we can approve for, right? So we'll, we'll get that number. But then we backtrack it a bit and we try to, you know, I want them to create a budget for their home because there's other costs associated with owning a home that need to be accounted for. And once we figure out that sweet spot, that's kind of their purchasing price, um, you know, that they're comfortable with that they, you know, for them and their family. Now we take it one step further with these, with this bidding war and these uh, multiple offer situations. And we break down what each additional $20,000, for example, will cost them on a monthly basis. So for example, let's say you're putting 5% down on a home. If you were to increase that purchasing price by $20,000, well, your monthly mortgage payment has now gone up by approximately $85 a month. Can you still make that work for your budget? Mm. If you can, can you go to $40,000? You know, that down, comes down to, you know, a family decision that they can make. But we make sure that they have those numbers prior to so that they're, you know, equipped and armed for that multiple offer situation. Makes sense. It's going to change a lot of people's plans. So thanks so much for joining us, Aleem. Appreciate your time. No problem. You're welcome. Thanks for having me. Thank you. That is Aleem Sharanya, who is an accredited mortgage professional with AC Lending Group. And you can get more information at aclendinggroup.com. Thanks for downloading and listening to the podcast. Don't forget to subscribe, rate, and review for free at Apple Podcast, Google Play, or wherever you find your podcasts. And tune in to Mornings with Sue and Andy from 530 to 9 every weekday morning on 770 CHQR.